privilege of preaching and proclaiming to you the wonders of God. I hope you've come in anticipation, especially after that call to worship, of hearing of these wonders, to be encouraged in the Lord, to be brought before the throne room of grace by his word in the spirit. And as we now turn our attentions to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be finishing this first section of chapter 2. And we've been operating under the theme of the exalted Christ. And we've moved from the heavenly witness to the exalted Christ in chapter 1 to now the earthly witness of the exalted Christ in chapters 2 and 3, where we find that uh, the Lord is not without a witness in his earth. Though the heavens declare the glories of God, truly it is, as I've always memorized it, the firmament declares his handiwork. And we will find that we are a part of that handiwork this morning as we look at Ephesians chapter 2. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let us go to our Lord in prayer this morning, seeking his help during this time. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you this word that you've given us this morning. We ask that your spirit, the spirit of God, would attend the preaching of your word, that we may profit from it. We may learn to conform our lives greater into the image of the Son, whom we have been redeemed by. May our lives overflow with thanksgiving at the reality of these truths. And we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, again, as we've been approaching Ephesians chapter 2, uh, as I've done um, to remind ourselves of our uh, companion text, a text where I've sought to show you that is echoed here in Ephesians 2, and that being Ezekiel 37, specifically verses 1 through 14. We saw, we've been seeing that the focus of both of these passages, Ephesians 2 and Ezekiel 37, are uh, not to emphasize necessarily the dead status of sinful people, but rather the divine work of granting new life to his people. That is God's decisive action 
of recreation for his people. We see both have an eschatological feel to it and certainly uh, rooting things in eternity past and pointing to uh, a surety of things now that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that there are works prepared beforehand, that all this is done to show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so we see a specific connection of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which we're addressing this morning in Ezekiel 37, verses 10 and 14. For in Ezekiel 37, in verses 1 through 14, in that first part, uh, or in, in 1 through 14, we have this uh, valley of dry bones, where the prophet Ezekiel is told to prophesy over these bones. And then, then the Spirit comes upon these bones and they come together and a great army is formed. And it says in verse 10, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then in verse 14, I will put my Spirit within you, and you will come to life. And I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. What we see there in Ezekiel 37 is we see that life produces action. Even the simplest action of, of breathing and standing on feet. But anticipated action in that this was an exceedingly great army produced anticipated action in that the spirit of the Lord would be put into them and they will come to life. That there's a living to this life. They'll be placed, he says, I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it. There's an intellectual, uh, intellectual action of knowing the Lord. And so as we look at this last section of Ephesians 1, 2, 1 through 10, we're going to see the same thing that the Lord brings to life. And what the Lord brings to life, he brings to life to live. It's a simple concept. It's, it's one that we're well uh, probably aware of and versed in. And it would do well for us to uh, study this intently this morning. And if uh, the Lord was teaching me patience about electronic devices it's now um <laughs> this morning we're, we're going to be uh looking at these things and so the first part ephesians 2 as as with ezekiel 37 show god bringing life where none should have been expected and as i said this life is animated life it, it, the lord enlivens a people to do something it's not just so that we would be alive, though that is a great gift, but that we would be uh, consecrated. We would be used to worship the Lord, to give praise and glory to him. In the first part, we addressed the first three verses about uh, death and a prince. Then in part two, we looked at verses four through seven, and we saw the contrast of death and a prince with life and a king. And now this morning, uh, we reach the conclusion of this first part of Ephesians 2 as we look at good works and a new creation. 
It is after establishing the original state of the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, Paul moved to explain the source and reason for their resurrection, and he explains the necessary result of this resurrection, namely new life or new creation life, really. As we, as we address this, we're going to see as we come to the end this new creation theme that Paul has in mind. For as we looked at last week, we saw that Paul writes under the knowledge of what happened during the first creation. The fall of man, the, the covenant of works that is broken in the garden. And so man is uh, bent on, in his old nature, attempting to fulfill that covenant of works in himself. And yet here Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is drawing us away from ourselves and back to God, namely in Christ. We're going to look at good works and new creation under two headings, under agency and under action. Agency pertains to uh, this idea of doing. So in the world of doing, there are agents and patients. Not patients as in have patients, but patients as in like medical patients. But we're not talking about medical patients. We're talking about those that are acted upon or those that act. An agent or an agents or to have agency is to act. So an agent is one who is acting and a patient is one who is acted upon. It's from these terms that we come to understand that part in our confession where we confess that God is impassable. He's, he's not a patient. He's never acted upon. He is pure agency. He is pure act. But here we see it, we're going to see it applied to uh, salvation. And Paul, in a sense, excludes all human agency. He, he, include, he excludes human agency altogether, as he does in Galatians 2.20, which we'll look at later on. So in the formula for salvation, which uh, as it relates to a logical order, is known as the ordo salutis in Latin, we find God as the agent and the one who is saved as the patient. And he begins uh, this in verse 8, that first part. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This becomes this independent clause whereby the next uh, four clauses hang off of. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This idea of being saved through faith is a keystone to Pauline theology. It's, a, it's no um, surprise that the heresies of the past, the ancient heresies of the past, sought to cut out the Pauline corpses or cut up and say, well, this isn't uh, original to Paul. This was written by, you know, somebody else writing in Paul's name, a pseudo-Paul. And, and they do it in such a way because the way the Pauline theology comes together is that we have been saved by grace through faith. That salvation as a whole is not of works. It's not of following the law, but by grace through the instrument of faith. 
We have to remind ourselves of this daily, don't we? As we approach each day, as certainly as we come to the end of each day, we find ourselves in, could be, could find ourselves in utter despair in how well we failed that day. How well we did not live up to God's prescriptions in his word. How well we did in failing to not only do what he commands, but certainly exceeding in doing what he has forbidden. And so we must come to this truth, for by grace you have been saved through faith on a daily basis, that we may be saved from any sense of self-independence or self-autonomy. And these four dependent clauses that hang upon this, the first part of verse 8, do so well to, if you were driving a nail, you would be hitting it sub-wood level. You'd be driving it deep into the grain. The first dependent clause is not of yourselves. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Here Paul puts us squarely in the place of patient. Right? The one who, who is acted upon. If we're saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves, and then this is of someone else. This is of someone acting upon us. Not us acting ourselves, but somebody acting upon us. In common terminology, we can understand this with a medical patient. It's not uh, a surprise that this, these terms interchange or these terms are like. And if we look at a medical patient and a surgeon... We may consider the absurdity of a medical patient waking up after surgery and saying, look what I have done. It's an absurdity to us to think that you would wake up after open heart surgery and say, my, look at, look at this. Look at how great I am. Aren't I so talented? Aren't I so smart? If you did that, they would likely hold you for 48 hours. We call that 4150 in, in our terminology. You'd be on a 48-hour or 72-hour hold, and they would check your psyche. Turn to Galatians chapter 2, and it'll help us further understand uh, this idea of us as patients. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Here, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Here Paul is driving home again to both Jew and Gentile that they find salvation in, in the same instrument and the same person. That the Jew doesn't turn to the law for salvation. That the Jew along with the Gentile turns to faith in Christ. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ... We ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. 
For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I rebuild uh, the old nature, if I rebuild that, uh, that old nature that's tied to that broken covenant of works, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Consider Paul's words there in Galatians 2.20. Consider this under this idea of agents or agency of agents and patience. We've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ being the agent, me being the patient. The life which I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago about this idea of of our knowledge of going to heaven. And if it begins with, well, I, we've certainly misunderstand, misunderstood what Paul is saying. For even here in Galatians 2, me, Christ lives in me, who loved and gave himself up for me. The subject is Christ. We are not the agent there. We are the patient. The second dependent clause that we see is that not only is it not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. This idea of, uh, in verse 8, it says that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We have that uh, textual help in the NASB that shows us it is, is not um, there in the language. So it's, the it is is connected to the that of that not of yourselves. And this that is uh, is somewhat deba- debated am- among certain commentators is what it's in reference to. Okay, so you have this kind of uh, ambiguous that here. And the way it usually is done in the original is they follow uh, the, gender, the gender of it. So if that was placed in uh, the uh, feminine gender or the uh, or it would have been used in the in the feminine or masculine, and you could follow it back to the the like gender of the other words or or the like tense. But here we find it in the neutral gender. Here we find it in a in a general sense, and so it's concluded that this is related to all that preceded it. That it could be read that that salvation is not of yourselves. This salvation is the gift of God. So that we don't need to parse it down to faith or grace, but we would see by grace through faith that it is not of ourselves. This salvation is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. And taking us again above the plane of the divine author, Above our plane, the divine author turns our attentions back to the heavens 
where the Father of lights in whom there is no variation gives good and perfect gifts. The gift comes with the power of its origin, the one who fills the heaven, and so it comes irresistibly. We see here that, that it says it is the gift of God. It is God's gift. It is related to God's dwelling place. It comes not from the earth. It comes from the heavens. It comes not from the power of man, not of yourselves. It comes from the power of God. So that who possesses the gift is indwelt or is in possession of that power. It also not only relates to us that way, but it comes upon the person in a way that has been said in the past irresistibly. That's what's been known as the I in the acronym TULIP of Calvinism. Irresistible grace. This understanding that when the grace of the Lord comes upon your life, it's not an either or or yes or no. It is an enlivening grace. And when the Lord gives you ears to hear and eyes to see, you receive the gift. God isn't oh so hoping like at a carnival game with the rings and tossing them out and just hoping that that ring lands exactly the right way so that he may win the prize us that he sovereignly elects those and so here we find that it is the gift of God but if we contemplate what is being expressed here we might agree with the Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen who does not suggest that the language of irresistible grace is too strong but rather, he argues, it makes too small a matter of God's enacting presence. For God is not an agent like other agents, and not a factor that may or may not be resisted. God's work in this respect occurs subvolitionally. We might say in a parallel to the language of subconsciousness. This idea that God could or could not be resisted may be tied up to this idea of irresistible grace. And certainly irresistible grace comes in contradistinction to resistible grace, which was uh, the counter-tenant of the Arminian movement, but that we would see that it's not whether God's grace is irresistible or resistible, it's whether it is God's grace. And so it's not, so if it's God's grace, it's tied to the person and being of God. So that then when you come to think about that in a greater way, you may find that even the term irresistible grace might make too small of a matter of God's enacting presence. And he says, for God is not an agent like other agents and not a factor that may or may not be resisted. God's grace, this gift comes upon us subvolitionally, almost like subconsciously comes upon us. And he drives further in the nail in the third dependent clause, not a result of works. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. We might find that not of yourselves 
and not a result of works and a gift of God are, are all saying the same thing. And surely they are saying very similar things. And here Paul removes any vestige of a works principle. And as we read in Galatians 2, there was an implied works principle in the Old Covenant. As he speaks about the law and being a Jew and what was been given, he said that uh, he was a Jew and he was not a sinner like the Gentiles. For he followed the law. The implication there is that in the Old Covenant, there was a works principle. And here Paul removes any idea that there could be a works principle in the New Covenant. Here he distinguishes the salvation offered in the New Covenant is not based on a works principle. Though as we will see, he will bring into view the place of works in the life of, of the Christian. But before he does that, he wants to make sure that there is no ground of works. There is no works principle in the New Covenant. There is no works principle in salvation. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3 to again emphasize this even more. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, deeds, deeds or deeds or whatever you want to say, deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Not a result of works. It is a gracious act of the Lord to save a sinner. He looks not down through the corridors of time to find out on whether or not we will complete our salvation. Nothing is contingent upon us. The fourth dependent clause is so that no one may boast. So that we would not be mistaken and drawn into. We, we think about this and for some in, in many ways, we, we read over this and we think like, yeah, of course. It's all of God, nothing of me. And we get down to this last dependent clause so that no one may boast. We look at this, it's, it's one of those, I think it's one of those phrases in scriptures kind of like uh, when it says, talks about wives to love your children or husband love your wives. Something that we go, well, I mean, of course. But why is this here? It's because we tend towards self-aggrandizement. Sometimes it comes differently than, hey, everybody, look at me. I'm the best. Sometimes we do it in the opposite way. We seek attention through self-abasement. A boasting in some ways 
of of our of our baseness so that with the motivation that others would think highly maybe of our humiliation our humility so we must be careful in both ditches of this road of not boasting for we should only boast in the Lord it's okay to uh, say that we're sinners it's okay to say that you're the chief of sinners certainly Paul said it but I think we understand what I'm saying when we can go beyond that and think so lowly of uh, what the Lord has given us that we are drawing attention to what he hasn't given us and usually it it leads to more temporal things so all praise is to be directed to God so that no one may boast the counter to that is that all praise is to be directed to God Paul wrote to the Corinthians he says if I were to boast in anything I should boast in the Lord the commentator uh, Allen says that Paul really does concern himself with defining grace and salvation in ways that accent God's agency, that rebuff an intuitive human impulse towards self-boasting, and that fix our attention ever on God's redemptive presence. We can't focus enough on God's agency in salvation for every moment within us within the old man there's an impulse towards self-boasting so that it is appropriate for us to study this with such intention and 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 drawing out these ideas taking every one of these dependent clause and and expressing it more and more because we are prone to self-boasting. We're prone to, to want others to think highly of us. And we are prone to, in that way, rob praise and honor that should be directed towards God. So Paul, having dismantled any edifice of human contribution to salvation he now turns our attention to our inclination to question the use of good works within the schema of the christian life we've just gotten down to this this point so that no one may boast and then he turns it and says for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them the agency here produces action first we must see that Paul's intention to show the reality that what was taking place in salvation in the being of a believer is not modification but new creation you weren't just uh, simply rebooted, rebooted with new software. It's not, a, it's not a modification or a tweak to your being. You're being made new. You're, you're recreated in Christ Jesus. 
Christ spoke to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. One theologian observes that the moment from our sinful state to the life we lead in Christ is like the rebirth of the dead. Certainly following along here in Ephesians chapter 2, we find that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And now we're made alive together in Christ. And he, he continues to hammer that home and accent it in different ways. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. What we see here is all the salutuses of theological writing. I spoke of the ordo salutis. It speaks of the logical order of salvation. That we, we find that often as, as we experience God's redemptive work in our lives, we, we experience it in a certain order. So we have the ordo salutis here for sure. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for, for beforehand so that we would walk in them. This idea of sanctification is in that order of salutis. Order of salutis. Order of salvation. There's the historia salutis. The history, historical salvation that's rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Created in Christ Jesus. And then there's that covenant of redemption, that pre-temporal covenant in the Godhead whereby God prepared works for us to walk in. And so we look at this idea of being recreated in Christ for a specific action and purpose. Question 91 of the Heidelberg Catechism says, Whereas we are delivered from all our sins and miseries without any merit of ours, by the mercy of God, only for Christ's sakes, for what cause are we to do good works? I don't think you can, I mean, I would imagine that if you've been a Christian for any time, that you've probably asked yourself this as you've come to grips with what's known as Reformed theology or Calvinism, and you go, okay, it's all of God. God has done it all. It's nothing of what I can do. Um, God is going to persevere me to the end. I'm secure in Christ. For what cause are we to do good works? What good is it? The answer, it says, because after Christ has redeemed us with his blood, he renews us also by his spirit to the image of himself, that we receiving so great benefits should show ourselves all our lifetime thankful to God and honor him. We should recognize that for what cause are we to do good works? Because we're being renewed by the spirit of God. They, they are a testimony to the spirit's work in us. They also are testimony to the new heart that we've been given that after receiving so great a benefits, we show ourselves thankful to God and honor him. John Barclay says, this obedience is not instrumental. 
It does not acquire the gift of Christ nor any additional gifts from God, but it is integral to the gift itself. This is where we understand that you can go off the rails or misunderstand Calvinism and say, oh, well, then good works aren't necessary. That's not been the testimony of Reformed theology. That's not the testimony of Scripture. Good works are necessary. They're just not meritorious. They don't gain standing with God. They don't improve your right standing with God. They don't maintain your right standing with God. But they are necessary. Because just like a new heart beats, so does a Christian do good works. It's put in the term of walking here. This term walking speaks of practicing or conducting one's whole life in a certain manner for good or for ill. Here it speaks of for good. We would walk in them, that we would conduct our lives, that we would practice our whole life in a certain manner. And that we would understand we do this because we are his workmanship. The question might be, then how does the workman work upon us? I think we can look at this under two final subheadings. Under law and life. Under word and world. Under revelation and reality. You can choose, choose one. But the idea is that he does it first or not first. He does it in, in his word. God's words of instruction work upon his new creation with new efficacy. And the word of God is now applied to a new heart, not made of stone, but made of flesh. It comes with new efficacy. Let's look at Psalm 94 to see this in illustration here. Psalm 94 begins, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, render recompense to the proud. Verse 7 concludes that first section. They have said, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. The wicked, those that are dead in their trespasses and sins, say, God doesn't see. And if he sees, he certainly doesn't care how I act or what I do. And then follow along, go to verse 10. He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke even he who teaches man knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are mere breath. And then verse 12, blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. 
that old nature and says, God doesn't see me, and if he sees me, he doesn't care, is met by this new nature where now the law teaches us and chastens us. And it says, blessed is the man who's chastened by the Lord, whom you teach out of your law. We see this also in that monumental passage in Jeremiah 31, defining the new covenant in verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and their heart, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The old nature requires the law on tablets. The new is written on the heart. And from our passage, though we didn't get this far in Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse, or in verse 24, my servant David will be king over them. And they will have, all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. Where at the beginning of the chapter, there was just dry bones. There's no walking. There's no keeping. Here now there's a direction to the new life given. We would walk in his ordinances and keep his statutes and observe them. And finally, Christ's pray, prayer, high priestly prayer in John 17. says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. The Lord does his work through his word. We attend to his word. And we are conformed to the image of the Son as the Spirit acts upon or through the Word and acts upon the new life given to us. And what of our life? Does the Lord work on us through our life also? Absolutely. One commentator said, Life in any of us is a very complicated affair. Things are always happening. Births, deaths, and marriages, business relations alter, circumstances differ. There seems no order and arrangements. It is chaos to us. And yet God knows all and knows the precise bearing of each event on our lives. It does not seem like it. And yet if we look back, we may often see that God has been working all along in harmony with one idea. That the finest work is often done by those sharp-edged chisels called pain and bereavement. How many of us are to be made perfect by suffering? It is not the dull tool that cuts the fine lines. We often find in our lives through these providences of God that he is through the pressures of life, through the heat of our days, removing the dross so that the gift that's more precious than gold is revealed. That his finest work is often done through pain and bereavement. 
and find that the workman does his work in us through the life that he's given us so that we don't need to know the forecasts of our lives don't need to know how when this pain will end or when this bereavement will stop or any other circumstance of your life whom you will marry when you will die but that you would walk in the works prepared beforehand that you would seek to love your savior in thanksgiving through obedience to him for the wonders that he has done in redemption again i've sure i've read this quote over the last few weeks in preaching to you pastor out east says uh, tom hicks says the goal of a christian's faithful obedience is not to obtain eternal life or build the kingdom by our works but to commune with christ for his glory and our joy no matter the apparent outward results or our works because of our works because we know he has freely given us his kingdom and life let us pray well heavenly father we